We've been working our way or beginning a new series, actually, in uh, the book of Colossians. Our uh, practice here is to preach through, often, a book of the Bible. And uh, we're starting a series in Colossians. We're still in the first verses of chapter 1. And uh, we come to a passage that is about, I think, a passion for the gospel, a passion for people, a passion for souls from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue as that crowd that will stand before God on that great day. Uh, And on a day like today, when we've seen in the news the division, the hatred, the racism, and the things that still divide uh, and, and harm, I think, us, shows us the deep need for the gospel to break down the walls of division and to create one people in Christ who love and serve Him. We come this morning to hopefully stir in ourselves a passion for the souls of those who need to know Christ, a passion for the gospel, and a passion for the kingdom of God. We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. If you'll read with me, hear then the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you to sit at your feet, to learn from you. Father, we would open our hearts and our minds and ask you to speak. Make us open, soften our hearts that your word may be received. Father, come and do more than impart information, but change us, capture us, fill us with your spirit afresh that we might love what you love and have passion for the things that grip your heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable. He has the scribes and the Pharisees that come to him and grumble as they did on many occasions, they come grumbling that uh, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And this made them upset. But Jesus speaks to them and instead of simply addressing their question, he tells them a parable. A parable about a man who had a hundred sheep. A wealthy man who had a hundred sheep and he says one of them got lost. And it says that he searched far and wide to find that sheep. And then when he brought him home, and he brought the sheep home, he rejoices, it says, and he calls all of his friends and says, rejoice with me. And basically has a party for the one that was lost. Do you think in your own heart and your mind, who do you know that is lost? Who do you know that It would rejoice your heart, and you would even want to have a party if they were to come to Christ, if they were to to see their lives truly and radically come to faith 
and be changed by Jesus. In Paul's typical style, he is writing to a church and he opens with thanksgiving. In verse 3, he's giving thanks and praise to God. He's expressing his gratitude for the, and joy over things that God has done and is doing. It's one, of the, it's, it's one of the important sections of his letter. Sometimes we read over these because he does it in a lot of his letters. And, uh, and so sometimes we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And we get into the meat of it where he starts addressing issues and problems and theology and all of this. And sometimes we can skip over it. But it's a very important part of his letters. And it's an important, one, of the, one of the reasons it's important is it gives us a glimpse into his heart. What makes Paul happy? Like, what is it that, that makes Paul grateful to God? What is it that drives Paul to his knees in gratitude before God? I want to know what it is that makes Paul, in that sense, tick. What floats his boat? What rejoices his heart? We get this glimpse, Paul's joy and gratitude. It's expressed in all these verses, 3 through 8. You know, and it's kind of bookmarked by this statement, this Uh, this uh, report that he's received about the Colossian church. We see it in verse 3. It says, we always thank God the Father. uh, And when we pray for you, since we heard about your faith, right? In verse 8, he ends up by saying, and that Epaphras is faithful minister who has made known to us your love, since we heard about your faith and your love. And so this is one section where he's responding in prayer to what God has done in the life of the Colossian church and in in the hearts and minds of those people. It's what drives him to his knees in gratitude. What excites Paul should challenge and encourage us to to nurture in ourselves a heart, not just like Paul, but a heart like Jesus. It's Jesus' parable, and when he tells it, he's the one who's lost sheep. And he said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And it says, the man in the parable says, rejoice with me that I have found my sheep. Right? That is the heart of Jesus. He invites us. He invites us into this this sort of way of thinking and feeling and what should should, excite our hearts is what excites his heart and Paul's heart. And so... He always thanks God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just pause and say there that when he says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we notice in the New Testament that he is no longer, at least in the epistles and and since early in in the Gospels as there's a transition, he is no longer referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is referred to always in Paul's epistles to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it shows this transition that we have come, that everything that Israel was and hoped for is fulfilled in Christ. And and now Jesus, in a sense, supersedes. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And so he supersedes these. And so where he was before Christ, the, the God of the patriarchs, now he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he prays. And when he prays, part of his prayer verse 4 is that he always thanks God. We are always thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and who, who is the gospel. When we pray for you, we're always giving thanks since we heard of your faith. He's always giving thanks to God for his gracious work. And not just his, the gracious work in his own life. In fact, 
I don't think in any of his letters does he thank God for his gracious work in his own life. But he's thanking God for what he's doing in the church, in the lives of the people around him, in the lives of those that he is seeing come to Christ. And the first thing that we see is Paul's joy over souls, his passion for the souls of people. And he says that I've started, he says, every time I pray now, every time I pray now, I can't help it, but I thank God ever since I heard about your faith in Christ, that you've come to faith. He heard about their salvation. He heard about them turning from darkness to light. He heard about them turning and trusting in Jesus. He's heard about them now becoming disciples and followers of Christ and uniting together as a church. And and he thinks about this little church that is that has happened and he says and ever since I heard what God did in saving you and and building this church I haven't stopped giving thanks and praise to him I'm so grateful for what God is doing in building his church it really is remarkable that this and you know if you take Paul at faith value that this really excites Paul that this is really what what makes him tick This is really what makes him happy and joyful to hear the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ increasing and prospering. And there's nothing like it for Paul. And it fills his prayers and his his gratitude. Ever since he heard of their faith, it's been a cause for worship. This is news about a people that Paul didn't know from a church that Paul didn't plant. It's not a church he planted. He just he heard that Epaphras preached the gospel in a town near to where he had planted a church. Epaphras came to Christ, probably in Ephesus, where Paul did plant a church. And there's somebody who heard the gospel from Paul and gave his life to Christ and went home to Colossae, and we'll learn he's, he's from there, that he goes home preaching Christ. And people are believing and trusting and coming to Christ, and a church is being planted. People he didn't know, but he can't help but think, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is turning hearts to Christ and building his church and his kingdom. Luke 15, 6 and 7. When finding his sheep, he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 of the righteous who don't need repentance. And he says, I mean, there's a certain joy, don't get me wrong, Christ over his church, but there is a certain joy in heaven, and so there should be a certain joy among us when one more person who doesn't know Christ joins us. More joy in that one than the, than the 299 sitting in the room. That that is what should excite us, and that is what should make us tick every time someone turns from darkness and to light when our hearts should sing. And he sits down to pray, Father, thank you. Thank you for building your church. Second Timothy 2.10, Paul writes and he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation. Right? He says, I do everything. I endure everything. It's what I'm all about. It's what makes me tick. That, that, that God's people, the elect, would be would obtain salvation and would come to know Christ and we'd be gathered in. That's what I'm about. That's what we're doing. We are gathering in, he says, his people, that they too may obtain salvation and an eternal glory. I do everything, everything 
that they obtain this salvation. Paul has a passion for souls, a passion for the gospel. And that's what we see. His joy in his passion for souls overflows is a, is a passion for the gospel itself. The message about Jesus Christ. The message that he is the son of the living God. That he is the savior of sinners. And that if you will put your faith and your trust in him, that you will not perish but have everlasting life. This, this gospel Right? Look at verses 4 to 6 and just hear the way he talks about it. I've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, you know, which has come to you and indeed into the, to the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. This, this gospel, it came to you. It saved you. Right, and it's, and it's going to the whole world, and you can almost taste his passion, right? As he's, this is what he is grateful for. This is what he is passionate about. It came to you, you heard it, you understood it. It's going to the whole world, it's increasing and it's growing. And his passion for the souls is that, that ever since I heard about your faith, overflows and spills over to the passion for the gospel, which is the means by which people come to Christ, right? How shall, they, how shall they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if we do not send and we send those to, to speak the word of truth that is the gospel? It's how he brings people. It is through the foolishness of what is preached that men and women believe, right? It's through the foolishness of the gospel, this message of the cross. It's a crazy thing. But you would say this message... Now, God made man to live the life that you and I failed to live, to die a death, to bear our sins in his own body on the cross, that, that in faith in, in what God has done there, that my sins can be forgiven and I could find life eternal and a new life now. And that this message, when we, and here you are, believed, trusted, and the church all over the world, this message is bringing people into churches and bringing people to Christ and changing lives, time and eternity. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who would come to believe it. Right? I'm not only not ashamed of that, saying it in the negative, I'm not ashamed of it, but on the other side of it, you don't have to read very far to know that he loves it. He loves it. He delights in it. He preaches it. Woe to me if I do not preach it. Right? So this, this passion that Paul has for the gospel, he prays as we saw as we looked at the prayers over the summer that he prays in Ephesians 6 for, for boldness, spirit-given boldness that he would proclaim it. He loves the gospel. He loves it when people hear and receive and believe the gospel. He calls the gospel, verse Six, the word of truth. No, the verse five. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so it's not, it's not a word of truth. It is the word of truth. And this is significant for us. It's very, in that sense, narrow. Some people say, why are you so narrow about this Jesus thing? Jesus was narrow. 
about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. No other name has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. You know that there is, there is a gospel, a word of truth about Jesus. And so Jesus who says, I am the truth, is this word of truth is about him. And it's a truth that governs all of creation and all of life. The word about Jesus governs all of creation and all of life. You'll see this as we press down in chapter 1 and we get to verses 15 to 23 here in a couple of weeks. And he starts talking about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. And, and he says, this is a word of truth that governs. It governs all peoples in all times in all the world. It is the word of truth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. That word, that reason, that, that reason for all things, that one in him, all things were created. And we're going to get, you know, it is the word. What marks this gospel, this word of truth coming in power, he says, is faith, hope, and love. Right? Faith, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, but these three remain. And, and they, this triad through church history has been captured, this faith, hope, and love. They are the marks, in many ways, of a true work of the Spirit of God. They are the marks of the power of the gospel coming home in the lives and hearts of people. Faith, hope, and love. Gospel fruit. When it comes, it produces these, and it produces them in this order. Now, I know in the text, they're out of order, because he says, you know, in, in, uh, in verse 3, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, so love comes second. But he says, but you have love because of the hope. And so truly, hope is prior. The, hope that you, the love you have for all the saints because of the hope you have that is laid up for you. So you have faith and you have this hope that, you, that is laid up for you. And because of it, he says, your love for all the saints, your faith, your hope, and your love. In that order. Faith in Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, his Lord and his King. Faith in what he did and that what he did, he did for me. And when we trust him like this, he says there a hope is born that, that you should have everlasting life, that you should not perish, but that you should have life. And so faith gives, gives birth to hope and a future. In verse 27 of Colossians 1, he talks about Christ in you is the, the hope of glory. In verse 12, he says that you have uh, shared in the inheritance of the saints. In light, you have this inheritance and a hope of Glory that faith gives birth to a hope. And that hope of a future glory that is laid up, and when it's laid up, it's stored up, it's saved up, it's sure, it's certain, and it's future. And that future, when we are ready to die, we are free to live. To live for the gospel and for him. Because our future is that secure, our hope is that solid. And this shared hope, this shared future that you and I have, gives birth to a love. We are a people together. We're a family. Right? We are a body. Like we're, we're a body, and we're the body of Christ. And, 
If I'm his hand and you're his arm, we're connected. You need me and I need you. There's this beautiful, every, every book that Paul writes, you know, there's this, this we, we share. We are the people of God, the ecclesia, the church. Genuine faith and hope is always demonstrated in love for all the saints, right? That's what he says. Ever since I heard about your faith and the love that you have for the saints, Remember saints? We did this last week. And he uses it again. All this, you know, it, and it just means all of those who are cleansed and set apart in Christ. The holy ones, the saints. Love for all the saints. You, we talked about how concrete and specific and practical another of the prayers this summer. Prayer that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And how concrete and practical and sacrificial and real our love is to be. And he says in your love, because of your faith and your hope, that your love, biblical love and truth that is manifest among his people. Paul takes joy. Joy in hearing of their faith and hearing of the love that they share together. And he gives thanks and he gives praise to God. And it should drive us to our knees in gratitude when we find that love in our midst. The marks of a true work of the Spirit of God through the gospel that we have faith in Him and a certain, certain hope that manifests itself in a loving, rich community before Him. It takes joy not only in passion for souls and in the gospel and its sharing, but he also takes joy and passion in the kingdom. Right in verse 6, he says that the gospel, the word of truth which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does since the day you heard it. But Paul has this bigger vision when he even thinks about his own ministry and he thinks about people he didn't even know in a church he didn't even plant coming to Christ and the kingdom is being built and then he can't help lifting up his eyes and seeing this is happening in the whole world. We see the gospel going to the ends of the earth as Jesus said it would be. And we see it growing and increasing and bearing fruit, he says, in the whole world and excites Paul to think of the magnitude of the work of God. And his kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. It's no longer confined in one small seedling of a, a country in the center of the Middle East, but he has a, it has exploded, that seed is, of every died has exploded in a growth and into a worldwide kingdom of every tribe and nation and language and tongue and, and converts like Epaphras who are sharing the gospel and people are believing it. The church is being built and the kingdom is being advanced and Paul delights when God's doing it and he's not doing it through him. And he's doing it through a lot of people and he's doing it all over. The kingdom, the kingdom vision that we would love not just ourselves and our church and our prosperity, but the prosperity of the gospel in every corner of the earth. And we would delight in it and support it and give thanks for it. Our global outreach events should be packed with people who can't help themselves but to come and delight in what God is doing. Jesus is building his church against the gates of hell. It's exciting to Paul for every bit of fruit, every increase, every advance. And the gospel is still bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been for thousands of years. Paul wrote this uh, 2,000 years ago. And what he was giving thanks for and what was driving him to his knees in gratitude is the same thing that is still going on in Hickson and in India 
and in the Middle East and in, and in Africa and in all these places where the gospel continues, the kingdom continues to bear fruit and increase around the world. It's waning in the West in many ways. It's getting harder in the West. We're almost inoculated against the gospel. Just enough of it to keep us from really embracing it. You know, to make us numb and dull at times. And where it's waning in the West and where the work is getting harder, it is prospering in the Southern Hemisphere and, and in the East and in other places. So much so that the only way many other religions are able to resist the advance of the gospel around the world is through violence and persecution. I was in India in the summer of 1986 for a couple of months doing mission work. And there was a large amount of religious freedom. And we, you know, there were a lot of folks doing mission work there, and um, we were seeing there's a lot of fruit, and people love to go to places why J.D. keeps saying, come to Africa. Every time we go, we see people come to Jesus. You know, and it's exciting to be a part of where you really do see the front lines of God is at work, and seeing people come to Christ is exciting. He's like, come and, and, and be a part of it and see it. And in India, this has been going on for decades, and, and, and especially in the lower castes and in the outcasts, and people who are being told that, you know, that Christ, God loves them and that they, that they are, can be a part of his people. And we see the church in India has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 40 and 50 years to the point that persecution and violence against Christians has risen. Governmental suppression, you know, the, the squelching of religious freedom. And this is what happens when other religions can't combat the message of the cross with their message. And the only way to stay the progress, the, the fruitfulness of the gospel is to persecute and to kill. It's what Islam does. You know, I think of it in terms of, you know, you, you, you know whether in communism, you always say there's got to be something wrong with the system where you've got to build walls to keep people in. You know, that there, there's a, you can't leave. You've got to build a wall so you can't leave. You know, that there is this thing. If, you're, if, you, if what you're doing there, people don't want to be there, there's a problem. Right? It's where in America we were talking about building walls to keep people out. You know, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the other way. And that's the way it is, I think, with the gospel where you've, you see other religions starting to build walls. You know, Islam, you know, if you have a religion where you can't keep your people according to your message, right, if the message isn't life-changing and gripping enough where people are, are, are abandoning, you know, in mass to Christ... And the only way to stop it is to kill everyone who tries to tell anybody else about Jesus or put them in prison or persecute them. Or if you convert out of Islam to Christianity to kill you and, and, and persecute your family, right? This is the way, it, there's something horrendously wrong if you've got to build walls of terror to keep people in. Or the gospel through the pure message goes forth in power and is still advancing and bearing fruit around the globe, which is why there's some conflict and persecution and violence at so many times. We should have a passion for this global increase in fruitfulness of the kingdom, which is, again, why the global outreach ministry in our church should thrive. Let me just say quickly as I'm pushing time here to, to, before I hit a, few, a couple of applications to say that fourth, he has a joy in the messenger, right? How beautiful are the feet of him who bears 
good news. Right? And Paul, not only is he delighting in the fact that these folks have come to Christ, the gospel that is going forth and accomplishing this fruitfulness in the kingdom that is advancing around the world, but the messenger that is doing it. And so Paul, he's not worried about the, you know, his own popularity. He's like Epaphras. You know, any, you know, any fellow worker in the gospel, man, we, we are so grateful for anyone and all who would give and go to share Christ. And he loves Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, verse 7, our beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister in Christ to you. Right? I love this guy. He's a brother. He's a fellow worker with me. He is doing the work. And going where I can't go or where I haven't gone. He has deep affection for this guy. Loves him as a brother. He, you know, talks him up to the church, you know, and, uh, and tells him that and he's a faithful minister to you. You should love him too, man. He's been good to you. And he's going to say it again in different ways. And not only that, he's ministered to Paul. We'll see in, in the book of Philemon, Colossians and Philemon are both prison epistles. And that Paul is in prison probably when he writes this. And in Philemon, he says, that, and he calls Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ. And we don't know if he was actually imprisoned with him or if he's just one who came to him and sat with him in prison, ministered to him and ministered to his knees and needs and brought him stuff that he, that he needed. But either way, he's a man who was, that Paul counted as a dear brother, faithful to him and faithful in the gospel. So a few things that I would just leave us with as we think about this, as we, as we get a glimpse of Paul's heart and Paul's heart, you understand, as Jesus' heart, rejoice with me when one, one lost sheep comes. Rejoice with me. Have a party. When the gospel changes the lives, you know, turns people from darkness to light. Jesus' heart is to advance and to build his kingdom to the ends of the earth against the very gates of hell. And it should be what makes us tick. It should be what drives us. And so the applications is nurturing a passion and thankfulness for the increasing work of the gospel and the advancing of Christ's kingdom, that it should be a good part of what makes us tick. And that we would want to come and be a part of those things. Sometimes I'm surprised that we don't have, as we do global outreach stuff and as we do other things, that we don't get more involvement. In some ways, this, my friends, this is, this is what the church is about. Some of the programs we're running around here are all fine and good, but if it doesn't show itself in a passion for the kingdom around, both in the community and around the world, you know, then, then something is, is misfiring, you know, that we, that, that we should want to stoke this passion, nurture it in ourselves. Let me just tell you that, that the gravity of our nature, when I, when I mean gravity, I mean like gravity, you drop a rock and it falls to the ground. And the gravity of our nature is away from those things to worldliness and our selfishness and self-centeredness, our own kingdom, our own concerns, being worried about all the... the gravity will take us there unless we are nurturing, fanning to flame the right things in our hearts day by day, gathering that manna in our hearts that that weds us to the, to, the, to the passions of Christ for his kingdom and for the gospel. And so nurturing a biblical passion for souls, that we would long to see people come to Christ. In our own community, you know, even as we've built and moved over here to this place, and we say that it's just a, a foothold, just a base of operations, Lord willing, as we dream about the ways that God might use us to reach the community, to be a place where the truth is preached, the gospel is preached, and people 
can come to know Christ and grow in their love for Him and their walk with Him. So we nurture a heart and a boldness to share Christ. Think about that person that as I asked you to think of in the beginning. Like, who do you want to see? You know, it's probably a family member. Most of us, our hearts are at home, you know, love for family. But also, is it a neighbor? Is it a coworker? You know, is it people around you in some way? That, that, that it should, that should be something. We should start making a list of those people and praying for them and praying for the, the, the opportunities and the boldness to share Christ. We should show warmth and hospitality to everyone the Lord brings through those doors. That they would feel welcome in our midst. That we would embrace and, and, and this openness. That everyone is enfolded into our small groups, into our circles, into our fellowship, into our ministry. And we don't know who walks through the door who doesn't know Christ. There are those who come to us. Sometimes they don't come from a church, and sometimes they do. But even if they come from a church, we don't know if the church is preaching Christ. Often church is preaching church. You know, we don't know they're preaching Christ. And when they come here, we don't know. You know, we've got to, you know, our hospitality and how we embrace those who God brings to us is part of our evangelism in that sense. Because we don't know. We don't love them to Jesus. And eventually, biblical passion for souls and a biblical passion for the church because the first fruits and the marks of the, of the faith and hope is a love for all the saints. That we would love each other well. And true spiritual love, you see it in verse 8, he closes with it again. I made known to us your love in the Spirit. That means a Holy Spirit produced biblical, strong, sacrificial, concrete, practical love for each other. Love in the Spirit. True love according to knowledge. You say, Robert, you keep harping on this issue. It's like you got some... some you know what I harp, You know why I harp on it? If, if you're thinking that, just wondering, is because because the Bible does. I can't get away from it. Every time I open it and go to preach a text to you, there it is. It says, "And in their love for all the saints." He says it in every single one of his letters, and many times, multiple times in the letter. And he and he teaches it as a true mark with faith and hope. There is love for all the saints. It is part of the mark of a true work of the Spirit of God in his people. And Paul harps on it, and so it keeps coming out. If we preach what Paul's writing, then we keep, we keep saying it. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, I close with this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We said that, you know, as, as saints, our great struggle from last week is to, is to be who we are. Right? He calls us holy ones and saints, right? And he says, in the great struggle of the Christian life is to be who we are, to live a life worthy of the calling which, which we have received. He's already named us holy ones. He already named us, has cleansed us, and set apart as his own. And now we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul, what does that look like? It looks like this. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. The fruits of the Spirit, we said, that's biblical, practical love and knowledge, is humility, patience, bearing with each other. It is love, eager to maintain the unity, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. A unified church is a strong church. Divided churches have a hard time having a strong witness. Oh, grace of God, may he give us 
hearts of gratitude and joy for the saving of souls, the gathering of the saints, the increasing, the advancing of his kingdom. Christ nurtures such a heart in us that we would love what he loves and give ourselves to it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel that saved us. We thank you for the word of truth that would that would deliver us from darkness and deliver us into the kingdom of your dear son, that we should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for the gospel of peace, the gospel of life and hope. Father, make us a people of the gospel. We pray that our hearts would be stirred for a love for the things that you love, which is the gospel and your kingdom and the advancing of your work on this planet where you are Lord and King. Oh, Lord, let it be what makes us tick. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.